on today's story beat. Start wherever you can start, like I started in the mailroom. Mm-hmm. And just keep advancing and uh, do your job well, learn your job and keep advancing. Don't do everything for money. Try and you know build your reputation. The other thing she said was aim for success, not money. If you're successful, the money will follow. This is Story Beat with Steve Cuden, a podcast for the creative mind. Story Beat explores how masters of creativity develop and produce brilliant works that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuden. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Steel City, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My guest today, theatrical producer, talent manager, and press agent, Alan Eichler, has represented or produced numerous stage productions, including The Dirtiest Show in Town, Women Behind Bars, The Neon Woman, Timbuktu, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, and Dreamgirls. He's worked with numerous luminaries of theater and music, like Tom Ian, Charles Ludlam, Geraldine Fitzgerald, Eartha Kitt, Melba Moore, The Rolling Stones, Paul Anka, Bobby Vinton, Edie Adams, Peggy Lee, Anita O'Day, Johnny Ray, Laverne Baker, and Ema Sumac, among many others. Alan represented Jerry Rubin's book, Growing Up at 37, and also worked closely with the late great playwright Terrence McNally on such plays as The Ritz, Where Has Tommy Flowers Gone, Next, and Bad Habits. Alan currently promotes legendary jazz harpist, pianist, Corky Hale. In 1994, Alan produced an original musical, Swanson on Sunset, about the attempts of Gloria Swanson to create a stage musical out of Sunset Boulevard as a vehicle for herself. Alan nurtured that project for many years, and now the film Boulevard, a Hollywood story, has finally reached fruition. Jeffrey Schwartz's brilliant documentary traces Gloria Swanson's ill-fated efforts as she joined forces with two gay writers who assisted her. The show was nearly produced before it all fell apart, which is the story at the heart of the documentary. So for all those exceptional reasons and many more, I'm honored to welcome the multi-talented Alan Eichler to StoryBeat today. Alan, welcome to StoryBeat. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you, believe me. So let's go back to the very beginning. Where did all of this create creativity for you in the world of show business come from? Where did you first start thinking about show business? At what age? Uh, probably very young. My, my, although I never knew where I would fit in. My grandfather had a record store. Mm-hmm. And uh, he would take me to the store with him on, on weekend on Saturdays when I didn't have school. And I help. I sit behind the counter and wait on people when I was a kid, you know, a child. Sure. Anyway, um, I started collecting records very early before I could even read because I, I could couldn't read what the records were, but I knew the labels I, you know i could identify the labels so i knew what i was playing right and my favorite i'm trying to give you a, an abbreviated version sure my favorite turned out to be patty page mm. and this is very early around the time of doggy in the window and uh, i started collecting i liked the way she sounded i didn't really know who she was i started collecting her records and that led to me being a record collector which i still am 
had a, a huge collection, thousands of records. Wow. And, and um, in 1957, she had an hour long TV show. And I, this is one of my funny stories. And I, uh, hopefully it's funny. Um, I knew that her manager had an office I, that, or I thought of it as her office. I knew there was an office anyway in Rockefeller Center. And I found the address and I took the subway into the city. I, I lived in Queens. I went into Manhattan and found the office. And it was a huge building in Rockefeller Center uh, on the 12th floor with banks of elevators on each side. Yeah, I, I had fantasized about Patty Page now for about five years at that point. Right. I had Patty Page coloring books, paper dolls. Wow. Scrapbooks. <laughs> I mean, everything. But anything that had Patty Page, I, I was collecting. My, my family all made fun of me because of it. All my relatives knew, my aunts and uncles and cousins, they all knew I, about my Patty Page infatuation. Anyway, um, the elevator doors opened and there standing in front of me in a full length mink coat and fully made up was Patty Page. Oh, wow. Getting onto the elevator across from me. And the elevator doors opened just long enough for me to see her before she got into her elevator and the doors closed. Right. Think about the timing of that. I mean, well, the, the, the odds are huge. Uh, whatever you believe in, I mean, for that to happen, you know, can imagine how I reacted. I went into the office and she had a secretary that was, it was actually her manager's office. And there was a secretary who was devoted just to the fans. That was her main uh, job. Because Patty at that time was the number one singer in the country. So you have to imagine her being a superstar at that point. Of course. And the show was an hour long color show on CBS, their first color show. Um, anyway, the, the secretary gave me tickets. I started going every week. Eventually, I had my own reserves seat and I was allowed to go to the dress rehearsals and which had no audience. And I could hang go go to the dress rehearsals and basically go up to any of the stars that I wanted to and talk to them or get their autographs, which is really unheard of. I was 13 and they were letting me roam the studio during rehearsal. Well, that cer certainly wouldn't happen today, would it? Not at all. And and uh, so after school, it was every Wednesday, the show was live. I would go into the city and go to the rehearsal, get something to eat and go in for the broadcast. And uh, I met all these big stars who at the time uh, I was getting their autographs, but it many of several of them later turned out to be clients, which is another bizarre thing. Well, it sounds like it was kismet. You know, you were meant yeah, to do that. And I still have the autographs. And that gave me the first sense of show business. And I always loved theater and loved everything. But I, I knew I wasn't an actor and I did, really didn't know what else there was. So you didn't feel like you had any stage talent or acting abilities? No, kind of I was majoring when I went into when I went to uh, that was I was in junior high school, then middle school. When I went to high school and college, I just went to a community college for two years. I majored in English and I was going to be an English teacher at one point. Mm -hmm. And I was accepted to a teacher's college, which I was going to go to after the community college. Again, it's kind of fate. The, the summer I finished my two years at the local community college living at home. And it was really like an extension of high school. I hated it. But um <laughs> Well, I just, it didn't, there was no sense of college. There was no campus. It was Nassau Community College on Long Island. They didn't have their own 
uh, building yet. So they were were operating out of a courthouse in Mineola. Oh, okay. And uh, so there was no, it was just getting up early, going to classes and coming home. There was no sense of, uh, you know, what college life would be normally. It it felt not like like an official school. Right. But I got a part-time job. We had the only Cinerama theater. Uh, I went to Syosset High School. We had the only Cinerama theater uh, outside of Manhattan, uh, the called the Syosset Theater, which was a reserve seat roadshow house, which was very theatrical. Roadshow movies, for those that don't know, played like a like a play. I mean, they they gave one show a night. With, with matinees maybe on the weekend or Wednesday matinee in this case as well. And it was reserve seats and we, we had ushers and I was the ticket taker. I had to wear a tuxedo, which was, you know, it was like putting on a uniform. I wore sure. a tuxedo and stood at the door and took tickets. And then during the, while the movie was on the first, they had usually had intermission. So the first half of the movie I'd have to uh, clean up the candy stand and go clean up the bathroom, mop the floors in the bathroom. But you were in show business. That exactly. It was very theatrical to me. I loved it. What's that? What's uh, that old famous story about the guy that follows the elephants around at the circus to clean I up? I know exactly that. But that's you know, I really felt it was show business. <laughs> but I was still planning to continue to teachers college, and just about a month before it was, I finished the two years, and it was like. August of this where I was going to start in September and um, up in Fredonia, New York, a town I'd never heard of, but they had a state teacher's college and they accepted me. Made famous uh, in duck soup. <laughs> Fredonia. I know it sounds like that. My brother, who was four years younger than me, wanted he was interested in the technical side of theater. He wanted to be a lighting designer and uh, or set designer lighting designer primarily. And he brought home a book uh, called something like, So You Want to Be in the Theater. And it had a, all these, had a chapter on each of the different jobs that you could do in the theater. And I started going through it and there was a chapter on uh, press agents. Today they say publicists, but back then it was press agent. Right. And uh, the last chapter in the book was on press agents. And the last line of the chapter was something like, if you're good in English and you love the theater, and being a theatrical press agent could be the answer to your dream. Mm. So it was like a light bulb went off. And I said, oh, I'll be a theatrical press agent. So I went through uh, all of the, I went through the yellow pages and all of my old playbills and made a list of all the uh, theatrical press agents in Manhattan. Right. Uh, there were all, kind of in the theater district so it was easy to go into the city and uh go from office to office which is basically what i did i did I had no contacts i didn't know anybody you were you were cold just, calling right i literally walked into each office saying i wanted oh it's the the chapter said you had to apprentice for the union right so i walked into each office asking to be an apprentice this is how little i knew and uh they were all different. Some of them were very small. Like back then, a lot of the, the old theaters had offices upstairs. And uh, one of them was this legendary old press agent named Richard Maney, who 
kind of went back to the days of uh, George Jean Nathan and, and uh, Brooks Atkinson. And wow, that's way back. He was, re he was reviewing like in the 20s and 30s. And his the last big thing he had done was My Fair Lady. But this was the uh, early six, mid 60s. And he was just this old man sitting behind a desk. He had nobody working for him. But I walked into his office. And it was kind of like seeing Miss Habersham. It was like, <laughs> I don't think there really were cobwebs, but it had that kind of feeling. It was dark, <laughs> very dark. And he was all the way against the back wall behind a desk. And of course, he didn't need anybody. Uh, and I went to another office that turned out to be the husband of the woman who had written the book. Okay. Another strange coincidence. His partner... Saul Jacobson, they're big. They were doing Fiddler on the Roof at the time, so they were kind of hot. And uh, they didn't need anybody, but they suggested I go to another office, Salters O'Rourke and Sabinson, which was a, a very big office. So I went there and uh, they hired me for the mailroom for $55 a week. But back then, $55 a week, you could kind of live on that, couldn't you? Well, yeah, I was still living at home, and that, that uh, it would have been a, it would have been a stretch even then. But I was still living at home, so I took the train in every day, which was two hours back and forth. Oof! Wow. And uh, but I loved it, and they hired me knowing that I wanted to be a press agent. So I guess that I always thought of them as teaching me, but I guess they did. They gave me my boss started giving me more and more things to do. And uh, more responsibilities. So was this Lee Salters? Yes, it was Lee Salters and Harvey Sabinson, who went on to be the head of the League of uh, Theatrical so Producers. So in, in a very odd coincidence, Lee Salters for a time in the um, 1980s represented Jekyll and Hyde while I was working on it. Oh, okay. So, uh, so I I have never actually met him. Never, I never met him, but I certainly benefited from right. his. By then, he was he was working out of Los Angeles, I think. I think so. Yeah. Um, so, so what fundamentally important things did you learn from them? What what were the fundamental bases well, back, that, that back then we had seven newspapers? Still in, seven in New York. In New York, we had seven major newspapers, uh, four morning papers and three in the afternoon. Right. And uh, we had all the columnists, all the old columnists were still writing, Walter Winchell, Dorothy Kilgallen, Earl Wilson, Leonard Lyons. And for, uh, for, for the listeners that don't know those names, these were very powerful writers in the newspapers that were, would talk about uh, people in the business and they would could move, they could move careers basically, correct? Yes. Uh-huh. When I came at one of when I came in in the morning, the morning papers were already there. But uh, lunchtime, I'd have to go out and get the afternoon papers and uh, bring those in and hand them out to everybody. And uh, there was a woman there named Lillian Picard, who since passed away. She's interesting because she was married to Jerry Kushnick. This okay. might be trivia to most people. She was married to Jerry Kushnick whose second wife was Helen Kushnick, the notorious manager of Jay Leno, who almost got him fired from NBC. Right. Um, anyway, Lillian was one of the main people who trained me. 
she, uh, part of her job, she had a, she had several clients, but part of her job was uh, doing the clips, which was reading all seven newspapers cover to cover, including the sports sections, looking for any mention of any of the clients. Now, don't ask me how she managed to do that every day and still do her publicity work, but she did. Think of reading seven paper, newspapers every day, it, cover to cover. Unbelievably hard to do. Looking for a mention that we had like 30 or 40 clients looking for any of the mentions, you know, it, unbelievable. This was the, the, the biggest office in New York. We had all the David Merrick shows, all the Neil Simon plays. Um, all right. So for, for the for the those that don't understand how this works, what does a press agent do? What, do, what does a publicist do? What okay, is the job? Publicity, a lot of people mix it up with advertising. Advertising is paid for. They're both promotion, but advertising is paid for. Right. You buy your space and you write an ad, create an ad or a TV spot or whatever. Um, publicity is trying to get free coverage. Mm -hmm. So you have to try and get the newspapers or the columnists to write about your client or a TV show or radio show to interview somebody. So is it all about relationships? Uh, yes, you develop relationships uh, with these people. I, working for, for a large company like I did, uh, it, it's easier because it's not Alan Eichler calling, it's, Lisa, it's Salter's calling. Well, of course, if you're working for Walt Disney and you call as someone Correct. working for Walt or, Disney, it's a lot or easier. William, or William Morris or ICM. Right. You, you, become the identity, you become the identity of the company that you're of course. working for. Um, Anyway, they started training me on the clips, and uh, then I became responsible for tearing out the pages. Or, or uh, we didn't have Xerox yet, so we had what was called a Thermofax, which crink this crinkly orange paper <laughs> that uh, you'd put everything, you'd run it through the machine, with, and it would create this orange, like almost like carbon paper, but it was orange, and it would have the image of the clipping. Anyway, then I'd, I'd have to mail the client the clips out to the different clients and their managers and their agents or whoever. Um, then he taught me to do rerouting, which was another interesting aspect. He had a system of, they made carbons. Again, we didn't have Xerox. So they made carbon copies of all the column items that went out. And after a certain amount of time, if they weren't uh, printed, they were rerouted to another columnist and they were rewritten to fit, to fit. So you took a Dorothy Kilgallen item and you rewrote it to fit Walter Winchell's, you know, because each of them had their own style. Sure. So my next job was cutting up the carbons into strips and, and get, you know, having them ready to be rerouted, sorting them out. Um, then he advanced me eventually to being a press agent. Yeah. I had my own desk and, he started giving me clients. And, and when uh, you had the clients, you were then trying to get them placed into various articles, right? Yes. The way he had a very large client list. Uh, well, Harvey Sabinson had the, had the theater office. They, he had a, an office where they all did the shows. And there were like three or four press agents working under him. But they all just worked on theater. I worked under Lee and I was apprenticing for Harvey. But my job was really under Lee Salter's. And uh, so he's, we had a, 
each each press agent was assigned a certain number of clients. And because I was new, he gave me, well, I don't know why he gave me, but the first ones he assigned me to were Edie Adams and the Hollywood Palace TV show. And then we had several stock theaters. So he gave me the Mineola Theater and the Westport Playhouse and the Paper Mill Playhouse. Mm-hmm. And in the winter, I had the Palm, Palm Beach, uh, the World Point Siena Theater in Palm Beach. So those were the first clients that I had. Then I guess because I was young, he gave me Bobby Vinton and Paul Anka and uh, the Rolling Stones. And um, well, those are those are some big acts. Thought, yeah, but they nobody thought of. I don't know. He I was just a beginner, but he gave them to me. And I had a secretary that I shared with somebody else. And um, I guess he figured sink or sink or swim trial by fire. I know I wasn't really into rock and roll, which was the funny thing. I was into uh, old movie stars and old singers. (laughs) So I was very comfortable with Edie Adams. And uh, I handled a Peggy Lee engagement. I was good with that. And that I loved working with Peggy Lee. That was interesting. (laughs) And I loved Edie. Um, I don't know what they thought of me because I was 19 when I started fresh out of uh, besides skip the eighth, well the, skip. the question alan is were you actually getting them placement were you doing good work for them oh i was very good at what i did so, I was totally so then they loved you then they loved i you. had no social life at all i was totally dedicated to my work mm-hmm. and uh oh but just before they made me a press agent they started sending me out to cover things because um back then if if somebody was coming to a show late at night coming to a show at night and they were going to go backstage after the show and be photographed. Somebody had to be there. So, and the other, the older, the senior press agents really didn't want to have to cover it. It was old hats to them. And uh, they didn't want to have to be out at 11 o'clock at night. The shows back then started at eight, eight 30 still uh, eight forty. So anyway, I was willing to do it. I was eager to do anything. So, I was like, maybe I was still 19 or 20. And uh, I was covering Ginger Rogers at, at Hello Dolly, you know, being <laughs> photographed with wow. whoever it was. And that was, you know, a thrill for me. I, I'd never done anything like that before. It must have been very heady at, at night. I don't know what they thought of me that you know, I must have seemed like a real kid to them. Well, you probably but, did. But again, I think as long as you were delivering the goods, they were exactly. Oh, oh, exactly. And uh, um, Ginger was was they all had their quirks. I learned later that a lot of the oldest stars would make a photographer get up on a chair and shoot down because shoot it, down. it shoot it covered their neck or their chin line. Sure. Um, that's an old Lillian Gish trick. Actually. That's, a, that's, a neat, that's a neat trick for anybody thinking about it today. I, I've heard Lillian Gish talk about that in interviews. Anyway, um, Ginger, there was a staircase outside her dressing room. She made the photographers go up to the top of the stairs. <laughs> and, <shoot down. laughs> and I covered, you know, parties late at night. And I learned, uh, this is like old time show business. You, it doesn't exist anymore like this. The AP office was open all night. And when you had pictures taken at an opening or a party or somebody at the theater, 
you could take the roll of film. You could have the photographer give you the roll of film. You could take it up to the AP office at Rockefeller Center. And they would develop it while you waited. And if they saw a picture that they wanted to use, uh, they'd print it and you'd sit it at a typewriter and type the caption for it. And I learned to do it. It was really fascinating for me, even though it was like, you know, one or two in the morning. And uh, so that was another thing I learned years later when I would, I would be in New York covering something. Uh, I tried doing that and it didn't work anymore. They didn't stay open. So oh, that was and, to, and today it's all done digitally. Oh, it's all, you can't, yeah. Well, they don't even use film anymore. Right. It's all digital. So <laughs> I'm just curious, how long did you do that before you turned into a manager? To, to, you were a talent manager. While I was still learning at, at, uh, at Salters. Right. Uh, I worked my way up to being a senior publicist with a secretary and an assistant and making 150 a week. <laughs> By then I got my first apartment in the city and uh, uh, I had met a singer named Thelma Carpenter who was a former uh, Count Basie vocalist and she had been recording for Coral Records since the early 60s. She had one chart hit called Yes, I'm Lonesome Tonight. Right. And she made, finally, her, her contract was running out and uh, she made like a final album, but they were going to drop her, you know, they were dropping her at, at the time the album was being released. So the album was just about to come out at the same time I started working with Salters. And I, I met her because I went to see Kay Ballard at a club in the village and Thelma was on the bill. And I loved her at the club. I just loved her singing. I didn't really know who she was. But I, we just became, had the, like a bond, you know, we became great friends. I, lo I loved Ethel Waters and she was a big Ethel Waters fanatic. So that was what the bond, you know, brought us together. And uh, so I started trying to help her with her career. And as I was learning at the Salter's office, I was using all the stuff I was learning, trying to help Thelma. And I was I'm a, all secretly, you know, on my lunch hour, I'd go down, but I wouldn't go down to get the newspapers. I would uh, go to the phone booth in the back of the newspaper store and call up the producer of Girl Talk or the producer of whatever, TV show and try to get Thelma on it. Uh, I helped get her booked in different clubs. Uh, I would send column items out under my own name, you know, to, <laughs> and I actually got things printed. Wow. And Lee finally knew about it. He would get angry, but, you know, and yell at me, but uh, he was a screamer. He would yell at every, about everything. Um, but that's kind of how I learned. And she was really on the skids. She eventually took a job uh, as a file clerk for Mott's Applesauce, Duffy Mott. Wow. And she got a call to listed down a few years later. Uh, Pearl Bailey was starring in Hello Dolly at that time. Right. She got hired to be Pearl Bailey standby. And Pearl was missing so many shows that they made Thelma the matinee star. Huh. Actually went on at night 101 times. Wow, that's a lot. So 
So I went from helping her when she couldn't get a job to her get becoming a file clerk and then seeing her on stage in Hello, Dolly. Did she recognize in you that you were loyal in that way? Oh, yeah. We were very close the whole time. And how was, important in that business is the sense of loyalty between manager and client? Oh, very, very well. Loyal up to a point. They uh, I'll get. Well, when I started ma- later, when I started managing, I after I went on my own, let's, I'll skip ahead. After I was on my own. Um, I, uh, I guess the first one I managed in New York after uh, Thelma was Maxine Andrews from the Andrews Sisters. Right. She wanted to do, she and this was in the late 70s. She and her sister Patty had done the show over here on Broadway, but they weren't speaking. And after the show closed, uh, they never worked together again and they they never spoke again. Hmm. But Maxine wanted to do a solo act. And what happened was I was helping book some of the acts at a club in New York called Reno Sweeney, which is a very popular cabaret in the village. And uh, I got the idea, the show had closed. I got the idea to book, I'd seen Patty Andrews on a TV show and I got the idea to book Patty into Reno Sweeney. Now Patty was the lead singer. So that, that was kind of obvious to go after her. So I contacted her and I, I somehow I got her phone number and I spoke to her. And first, when she first answered the phone, she thought I was calling to get the Andrews sisters. And she, she, she said, uh, you know, the girls aren't together anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I know I wanted, I was calling to to see if you would be interested. Anyway, when she heard what the money was, it was 2,500 a week, self-contained, which meant she had to pay the musicians out of the 2,500. Mm-hmm. She, of course, wasn't interested. Then I thought, uh, why don't I try for Maxine? And it, I didn't quite know what I was getting into because to me, Maxine was like a left shoe. I didn't know what one Andrew sister who wasn't the lead singer could do. <laughs> <laughs> but I still pursued it, and she was interested and accepted the offer. By then, I was I was working with Geraldine Fitzgerald already on her sh- cabaret show, and I invited them to come see Geraldine's show, which was playing at a theater, at the Roundabout, actually. And um, they loved her piano player, and they hired him to work with Maxine and they created the most incredible show at Reno Sweeney. It was a smash hit. And Maxine became more popular than Patty uh, for the rest of her life, actually. Wow. Her, her show was so successful. So I, uh, I'm, cur- I'm curious. Okay, so we know that you've been a publicist or a press agent, right. however you want to call it. So that's placing people in the news, basically. Right. Well, what happened was the more I did publicity, the more... I wanted to be involved in every aspect of the career. All right. So, so my, I'm curious, what does then, what's the difference? And there are big differences. Clearly, what does a manager do? What does that job entail? Okay. I'm Okay. I'm going to explain the difference. An, an agent is someone who gets the job and takes the commission. And that's once they get the job that their, their job is over. Mm-hmm. A manager in my mind, everybody operates differently. But to me, a manager was someone who, 
guides the direction of the career. So every job should be a stepping stone. There, there are many jobs and jobs you do uh, for reputation. Geraldine actually taught me that. Is it a little bit like playing chess? You're trying to see steps ahead? Yes. Well, yes, that's how I operate. So obviously the money jobs you do for the money, it could be a cruise ship, it could be anything like that. Um, a, a reputation job is something that may or may not pay. It would be something you don't are really, are really doing for the money. So it could be a cabaret actor, it could be something that's not really gonna pay you a lot, but it'll get you the reputation, get you the, the good reviews, get people talking about you, build an audience. So that, that's kind of how I always thought. Then um, because, because of my record collecting, I was always very, I always loved the older singers. Right. And uh, whether I knew them personally or not, I, well, I didn't know any of them personally except for Patty Page. But uh, um, somehow I got the knack of taking, being attracted to people. I'm talking now about my perspective, not in general. A manager in general does the things I said. Right. They try to build the career and uh, every manager works differently, but most of them are have a goal and the goal is to build the artist up to the maximum height they can reach. Alan Sverdoff is a wonderful example. He managed Rosemary Clooney during her down period and you know built her back up through four girls four and then as a solo attraction and made her made her you know like a major name again um patty uh patty page's manager jack rail discovered her in oklahoma when she was this chubby little singer on a local radio show in tulsa and uh slimmed her down turned her bleached her hair blonde made her glamorous and turned her into the hottest singer in the country. So that, you know, you know, he told me in his own words that he, she was totally uh, reinvent, recreated, re reinvented. And, uh, and then that, he that, said- That's been true for was, a lot of big stars, hasn't it? Yeah, he said she was a good singer, but he said, but she was totally, you know, re remade. Um, yes, well, yeah. To a certain extent, you know, but some of the ones that I worked with, most of the ones I worked with already did what they did and they were already well established, but they were, uh, I hate the word has-beens, but they were, they weren't in the public eye as much. And so they needed someone to help to push down right. a new road. Yeah. What attracted me were people that were unique in some way. In other words, that they were originals and that they did something that nobody else did or something that other people were copying, but they were the original. And uh, it didn't matter to really what they did as long as they were unique. So my clients included Geraldine Fitzgerald, who was a great actress, to Mamie Van Doren, who was, you know, a blonde sex symbol. Mm -hmm to Ema Sumac or Anita O'Day or any, they were all totally different. Ruth Brown. Um, Eartha Kitt, I guess, was one of the first. People don't, 
who know Eartha Kitt, who know who she is. So there are people today that don't know who she is. But people that remember Eartha Kitt probably would be surprised that she, there was a time when she wasn't getting good jobs. I, through Geraldine Fitzgerald, I, I was hired by the producer of a show called Timbuktu. This is 1978. It was a reworking of Kismet, but set in Africa with a black cast. And Jeffrey Holder, who had just done The Wiz, was directing it and designing the costumes and sets. Right. And uh, it hadn't been cast yet. Although they had, they had William Marshall, who was a, a black Shakespearean actor, who's probably best known for Blackula. Blackula, yeah. Um, to, he was going to play the Alfred Drake role of Haji. They had Melba Moore uh, to play the princess and Gilbert Price to play the prince. And they hadn't cast Laloom yet, who was the, the glamour character. Um, the producer was leaning towards Frida Payne and one or two others. And Jeffrey wanted Eartha Kitt. And I loved Eartha Kitt. I didn't know her, but I'd always been a huge Eartha Kitt fan. And so I was siding with Jeffrey and we were, and Luther thought she was too old and too, this is 1978. He thought she was too old or too passe. And we, we just kept working on him and he finally hired her, he hired Eartha, which is important because Eartha eventually became the starring factor of the show. William Marshall was fired out of town in Philadelphia. And Eartha became the prominent name in the show, along with Melba Moore and Gilbert. When we played Washington, um, the show tried out in Philadelphia and Washington. And uh, because I knew we were going to be in Washington, I got uh, Eartha Kitt, for those who don't know, had been thrown out of the White House or blacklisted by Lyndon Johnson because she attended a White House luncheon and she spoke out against the Vietnam War. And it became a big scandal across, throughout the country. Uh, and Johnson called all the newspapers and, and uh, club owners and various important people in the business and told the, the agents, told them he didn't want to see her on television anymore and didn't want to see her in the newspapers. And she didn't know this at the time, but uh, while we were in Washington, Jack Anderson asked to have lunch with her. So Jack Anderson was the main uh, political columnist for the Washington Post. Britt Hume, who some people may know better, was his assistant. I see. And took over the column later. Anyway, uh, Jack Anderson wanted to have lunch with Eartha, so we had lunch. I went with her. And he handed her a copy of her dossier from the FBI. Oh, wow. Which told, spelled all this out, that the CIA and the FBI had gone to all the club owners and the agents and said they didn't want to see her anymore. And, of course, the club owners who were, a lot of them were mob connected didn't want you know the fbi coming around <laughs> so it affected her career so anyway in 78 when she was hired uh, and also the publicity that came out made eartha seem like the villain like they made it sound like she'd gone to the white house and insulted the first lady that's how it was portrayed in the papers 
So I knew we were going to Washington. So uh, Geraldine Fitzgerald's husband had been very active with the Jimmy Carter campaign. And he contacted the Carter people and said, if there was any way, Carter was president. He said, if there was any way possible, could she be invited to a White House event? And so for, uh, Ford's theater had been refurbished and they were having a big celebration for the reopening of Ford's theater where Lincoln was shot for those that don't know that. Um, so we went to the, the reception and we were on the, the line, the receiving line to meet the president and first lady. And when, you know, waiting our turn, we were just going through the reception line. When it got to be, every people were going through the reception line, one after the other, shaking hands and, you know, moving on. When it got close to Eartha's turn, suddenly all the cameras went on, all the lights. It was like so oh, wow. incredible. All these lights went on and all the cameras, you know, were gearing up and flashbulbs and, and camera lights suddenly were everywhere. And uh, because it was, it, uh, it became a major news story. The next day, I, and I was right behind Earth on the line. The next day, the front pages of every newspaper in the country and that night on every late night Tell you know a newscast where big stories Eartha Kitt welcomed back, <laughs> and somehow it made audiences think it was okay to like her again. And from that time on, she got a standing ovation every show. Did you have anything to do with arranging that? I arranged the White House invitation, but not the turning on of the cameras and making that. No, happen. no, no. That was because it was a hot story that it was her first time back at the White House since Lady Bird. So, the, so uh, it wasn't a stunt to have that happen, but, 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 but well, in fact, I, getting her at the White House was very I, I had a sense that it would be a news story. I, 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 I thought her first time back at the White House would be, would make news. I didn't know it would be that big that it would be on front pages, but I, but uh, I thought it would get coverage. And it did, and it was on the all the every newscast that night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked. Then we went to New York and opened on Broadway. And uh, I devoted myself to Eartha. Basically, I, I promoted Eartha. I mean, I did what I could for Melba and Gilbert, but I was enamored with Eartha Kitt, and so I really concentrated on her. And I made her the talk of New York. We went to everything. We were at every party, every event. I managed Eartha, Rita Hayworth, who was in the news because she had Alzheimer's, uh, came to the show. And I brought, I tipped off an AP photographer who came and photographed her backstage with Eartha, which got her daughter angry. But we got the picture and it made all the papers the next day. And she looked beautiful in the photos. So, you know, that was okay. Um, uh, the Diabetes Association was having their dinner. I arranged for Eartha and Gilbert to speak. We timed it for the intermission. And uh, I had it arranged. We had a car waiting and I, I had it arranged so that they would hold the second act if necessary. So uh, as soon as the first act curtain came down, we ran to the car, got over to the Waldorf. 
Now, Earth and Gilbert were in costumes that were almost nude. I mean, they, Gilbert had like a little jock strap thing with beads on it. And, and uh, Eartha had a kind of a nude costume that was similar to like the things that Marlena Dietrich wore. All right. Like a see-through costume. Right. And uh, we ran through very exotic makeup and a turban. And we ran through the lobby of the Waldorf <laughs> <laughs> into, into the banquet room. And they got up on stage and, and spoke. Then we ran back through the lobby to the car, back to the theater. And we got there before the intermission was over. <laughs> so, so let's talk about um, how you got from being a manager into producing shows, because that's a different entity entirely in terms of uh, what you're doing in the business. How did you then become okay. a producer? Uh, in 1974, I went to see uh, Geraldine Fitzgerald. Geraldine Fitzgerald, who was a dramatic actress, had been taking singing lessons because she had to sing in a Paul Newman movie called Rachel, Rachel. And uh, that led to her putting a cabaret act together. And she was booked into Reno Sweeney, where I later worked with uh, Maxine. Right. Um, and I didn't know her, but I... I I was intrigued by the fact that she was playing Reno Sweeney and I went to see her show and it was fantastic. Uh, she, she called it street songs. And uh, when it was at the end of the show, I probably would, never would have spoken to her. I would have just gone home. But as I was leaving, she was sitting at a table out, out by the bar. There was, there were tables and she was sitting at a table with her husband. And so I, went over to her to compliment her on the show to tell her how wonderful it was. And I said uh, that maybe I could help her. And she didn't have anybody that was really working with her. You know, she had her agents, but they weren't helping her cabaret act. And uh, so she took me up on it, basically, you know, because she could use help. So the first thing I did was book her into Brothers and Sisters, which was another popular club. And uh, where Barbara Cook got her start, her comeback start. And uh, I started working with her. I loved it. We bonded immediately. And, and uh, I, lo I loved her. I loved the show. And she said, she decided that I shouldn't be a press agent. I should be a producer. <laughs> like a, being a press agent wasn't a good enough profession. I should aim higher. <laughs> so she, she said I should be a producer. So she made me producer of street songs and uh and so it was it, a, again another trial by fire no you weren't educated in it you weren't trained in it you didn't go to school for just, it just my just my own instincts yeah the being a press agent it it started earlier with Thelma Carpenter and then some of the clients some of the people I worked with as a press agent I ended up getting more involved with and like Dorothy L'Amour, who I met because of Hollywood Palace, had was living in Baltimore and really was unconnected in the business. She'd gotten onto Hollywood Palace because Ben Crosby was host and they wanted to have one of her his old road, road co-stars. Sure. But um, she was living in Baltimore, didn't have anybody. I contacted her because of publicity, doing publicity for the 
for the show. Um, I got her an agent that I knew, a theatrical agent. He got her the Hello Dolly tour, which, you know, led to her moving back to Los Angeles and, and resuming her career again. Um, and I was very close to her. I helped her through all of that. So that was part of managing some of the stock people that um, I worked with when I was helming in the theaters. The, the shows would tour, the summer stock shows would tour. They would play like a circuit from one theater to the other. So I was handling the whole tour basically. So Alexis Smith, who hadn't worked in a long time, was touring in a play called The Coffee Lover, which was a minor comedy, but it was being promoted as pre-Broadway. So I treated her like she was a client and I got her uh, the cover of the Sunday News magazine. I mean, I was getting her like major New York publicity. Right. For a summer stop. As a producer or as a manager? Well, I was helping build her, her career because she hadn't worked in a long time. Right. So I was getting her these interviews and at one of them, she said, she said to me, I forgot I'm supposed to have opinions again. <laughs> if they were asking you know, questions. Anyway, um, so I helped, I was like rebuilding her career in a way. And that was just, just before Follies. I was handling a jazz club called Hoppers, uh, which was, I get, everything seems to be in the village. Anyway, Hoppers was downtown on 6th Avenue and 8th, 9th Street. And uh, was a, was a very large restaurant but it had a jazz room in it. It had just, it was brand new, it had just opened. And uh, they hired me to do the publicity for the jazz, well, I guess for the whole restaurant, but primarily the jazz room. And uh, one of the, the, it played pretty good jazz names, Joe Williams, Carmen McRae. Uh, they booked in Anita O'Day. This was in 78, 77. And again, I probably never would have talked to her except uh, I went, I was in the club the afternoon that she was rehearsing. It was the, the day she was opening and she was there rehearsing. And at, after the rehearsal had ended, she was sitting at a table with her drummer. And so I went over to her and introduced myself as the press agent. And again, we just clicked. It, 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 it became like, you know, we just, I just loved her. I loved her as an eccentric character. I wasn't really, I didn't really understand the singing. I didn't understand that kind of jazz, what she was doing. Right. But I, I, she fascinated me. Her performing style fascinated me. And also as a person, she fascinated me. And uh, that this, this was right around the same time as Timbuktu. And Timbuktu went on tour and uh, Anita lived in Los Angeles. And when uh, we were playing Los Angeles with Timbuktu, I reconnected with her and uh, booked her into a club in uh, a popular club in West Hollywood called the, ba the Backlot, which was a cabaret room in a gay disco called yes. Studio One. Sure. And uh, they were playing acts that appealed to a gay audience. Right. Uh, like Cheetah Rivera, Bernadette Peters, Barbara Cook, people like that, Dolores Gray. 
So playing, having Anita O'Day in this gay cabaret room was uh, unusual, to say the least. Um, and I wanted to make it a little bit theatrical. So I had seen um, a TV appearance that Ruby Keeler made where they projected the 42nd Street number from her old movie on, on the back of the stage. And then she broke through. It was like a paper screen. So, all right, let's talk about Gloria Swanson. How did you get involved in Gloria Swanson's project to turn Sunset Boulevard into a musical? How did that happen? Um, as a collector, I had a lot of, I still do, have a lot of rare tapes. Uh, there's like a collector circuit, you know, they, people trade with each other. And so I built up a large collection of uh, different various tapes. And one of them was the original demo recording that Gloria Swanson had recorded in the 50s of this musical version of Sunset Boulevard that she was trying to do. And so I knew it existed. I had the recording, so I knew she, I knew about it. And uh, when uh, the Glenn Close, Andrew Lloyd Webber production was about to open at the Schubert in Los Angeles, the LA Times did a huge uh, feature on Andrew Lloyd Webber saying how brilliant he was to have come up with this idea. <laughs> So I wrote a letter to the Times saying that uh, that it, he wasn't the first that Gloria Swanson had the idea back in the 50s and that she had tried to get it produced. And uh, they printed my letter. Wow. And a few days later, later I, later, I got a phone call from Dixon Hughes, who was one of the writers. And... Uh, wanted to meet me so we had we we made a date for lunch and my original thought was to get his version of sunset boulevard open in, in a, like a smaller the a small theater and uh kind of get the jump on the glenn close production right open ours quickly but then talking to him i realized that paramount owned it and we you know we didn't have the rights anymore or he didn't have the rights but then he started telling me the story of how it got written, that he had a partner at the time uh, who he was who he wrote with uh, 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 a lover. I should, you know, might as well be frank. He had a lover at the time who was his writing partner. Right. And uh, they were they were commit. They were they approached Gloria Swanson originally about, to do a, a review that they had written. And this is Richard Stapley, right? Richard Stapley was his partner who was an actor. They had written a uh, musical with time as the theme, so, so uh, time, which was actually Time Magazine was the theme. So it was every kind of article that would have appeared in Time Magazine, but a song or a sketch based on each thing. And um, she had been in a flop, a big flop called Nina and had been brutalized by the critics. And so she was afraid to go back to Broadway. She was at a point in her career where she was too old for movies. She had had this big success with Sunset Boulevard, but she was really too old for movies. So there was no follow-up. And uh, she had had a flop on Broadway. So she like, had nowhere to go with her career. And she said to them that what, the only thing she would consider would be a musical of Sunset Boulevard which to me sounded like the most bizarre 
the least <laughs> successful idea you could possibly have. This was at a time of pajama game and damn Yankees. And, yeah. You know, shows like that. I mean, to do a dark thing like Sunset Boulevard. Anyway, he told me all the story. And then he told me how she got in a crush on Richard. And uh, and meanwhile, Richard's a gay man. Right. And he kind of worked her with the documentary doesn't clarify, clarify that too much. But he kind of took advantage of her. He let, he led her along and did everything short of having sex with her. Mm -hmm. So she was getting more and more frustrated. And the, uh, they did have Fryer. Robert Fryer was interested in producing it at one point. And then it kind of all fell apart. And then she didn't really have the option at Paramount. They didn't want to. They didn't want to renew the rights. And it, anyway, it all fell apart. But he told me the story, and I said, "Well, that's it. Let's do that. Let's make that the story, and have it be Gloria Swanson, and you and Richard as the characters." The story being the story of writing the music. The real story of how it got written with instead of Norma Desmond, have, have it be Gloria Swanson. And turn that into a musical. That, said, right, and use the songs that were written for the show. Um, so that's what we did. Uh, Dixon was a uh, singer pianist who kind of like Michael Feinstein. He played, he was playing at the Ritz Carlton at that time in, in Pasadena. And so even though he was too old to play himself, I thought the idea, the fact that he was the real person would be kind of interesting. And I was booking the Senegal, so I arranged for it to get a month's booking there. And uh, which, which so as I, I recall, was a kind of a small space. It wasn't a big full-blown stage. A cabaret room in the hotel. Right. It was a very popular club in LA. And uh, so he... And I said, I was trying to connect it with Sunset Boulevard. So I said, well, have Gloria Swanson be Gloria Swanson. You be yourself, but kind of be the William Holden character. And no, you be the Nancy Olsen character and have Richard Stapley be the William Holden character that she gets the big crush on. And I said, narrate the story, just like William Holden narrated the movie. I said, you be at the piano and accompany everything and, and also uh, narrate the story of the show. So we got an actress to play Gloria Swanson. He played himself and we got a young actor to play Richard Stapley. And we opened for a, a month. Um, in the documentary, they say it wasn't successful, but actually we got some very good reviews. And, uh, you know, it never it never went on from there, but, but uh, we got it done. And... Um, a book came out about Gloria Swanson, a biography. Gloria Swanson never mentioned the show in her own memoir. And Dixon said it was because it wasn't successful and she didn't want to write about anything that wasn't successful. Well, there you go. But somebody else came along and did a biography of her. And he interviewed me for the book. And so he wrote about the show and the original production and how she wanted to do it and 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 you uh, and you hung on to this what material or the this idea? It was like of it? twenty years, yeah. And what were you trying to well, keep we, getting we it did, produced? Yeah, we, we, did, we did the show in ninety four, right? And it was like twenty years later, uh, more than more than twenty years. No, yeah, two thousand four to the yeah, more than twenty years later. Jeffrey Schwartz had read the book and he contacted me and wanted it. To, he was had done a lot of documentaries and he wanted this to be his first feature. 
and he was trying to sell it as a feature and raise money for it, but it, he was having a hard time. So then he decided he would do it as a documentary. And even still, he had to raise the money, which he eventually did. That took a couple of years, but he got it made and it opened in August at Outfest. And uh, he made me executive producer, which uh, was a great credit. No money, but I, I'm executive producer. <laughs> And uh, well, what, documentaries don't, don't make we're money. All, we're already all, all the way back to cleaning up after the elephant. What you give up show business? It, it, exactly. Well, it's not. A, I was never. I was never money motivated, and none of the things I did ever did were for the money. You did it because it was something you needed to do. It was passion. Yeah, Ger Geraldine. As I said earlier, Geraldine said there were money jobs. Uh, Geraldine taught me a lot. She said there were money jobs and then money, then jobs you did for reputation. An another line of hers was, and she said this about herself when she had to restart her career as a character actress. She said, it's not true there's room at the top, but there's a lot of room at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that true? So I've been speaking to, to Alan Eichler for a little more than an hour at this point, and uh, we're going to kind of wind this thing down. I'm, I'm just wondering if you can share with us a really solid piece of advice or a tip for those who may be starting out in the industry, either as a talent manager well, or publicist I'll, I'll, or producer. I'll, I'll say both. Well, the, what I said. Uh, what Geraldine said uh, about room at the bottom, lots of room at the bottom. You start start wherever you can start. Like I started in the mailroom. Mm -hmm. And just keep advancing and uh, do your job well, learn your job and keep advancing. Don't do everything for money. Try and you know build your reputation. The other thing she said was aim for success, not money. If you're successful, the money will follow. Isn't that wonderful? That's That's a great thought also. Years later, what I I saw I ran into Lee Salters I guess in the 90s or early 2000s I ran into him at, at an event and I got a, emotional for some reason we I did he was not a he was a great boss but he was nasty and could be mean and mm -hmm. everything so I had mixed you know memories of him but uh, he was he was number one at what he did and I got a little bit emotional and when I went up to him. And I said, uh, Lee, I just want to tell you that you taught me everything I know. And he said, I don't teach, people learn. <laughs> so he threw it back. He gave the compliment back to me. You know. So that's another, you know, thought. I, I um, think there's I think there's a little of both. I think, yes, absolutely. Yeah, he did teach me, but but he but. At the same time, I learned. You know. Well, he can't teach someone that isn't interested in learning, and you can't exactly. learn if you, there's exactly. nothing to, nothing to learn from. So exactly, it require it's it's a it's a dance. It requires two sides. Exactly. Yeah. So now I, I'm writing. Now I'm a writer. I, <laughs> I compile CDs and I write the liner notes, and I'm halfway through a memoir. I've got 300 pages written. Wow! And is, do you have a uh, a goal toward publication? Uh. Well, I want to finish it. <laughs> but, but I mean, are you trying to get it finished by a certain date or, or not? Oh, no, I'm just doing it. At my, I kind of stopped during COVID, COVID, but I should really have been working. But um, I had some personal problems I had to deal with, mm -hmm. uh, domestic problems. And uh, so I stopped. I, I, I had a partner who was ill and passed away. Oh, so sorry. I was dealing with, with a lot of that. But I, uh, I, I'm getting back to it. 
Well, I have been uh, speaking to Alan Eichler for a little more than an hour, and this has just been a very fascinating review of essentially a lot of old-time Hollywood and old-time New York, for sure, and the way things were, and we know they're very different today. And I just wanted to say I'm grateful for what you have you know, what you've done and kept preserved and so on. And I thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all these wonderful stories. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. And so we've come to the end of today's story beat. If you like this episode, won't you please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great story beat episodes to you. StoryBeat is available on all major podcast apps and platforms, including Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many others. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.